0: Yeah. I can,
1: yeah. Okay, and the story begins.
0: I hope it's a good one today.
1: Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> we are on the last section of our last section, I should say, of chapter 41. We're on page 517. And we've been bouncing around from several different topics. The general theme is... How to develop Kavana. We spoke about in earlier chapters the importance of Kavana. And now we're discussing how to attain Kavana. At the beginning, we said the very first Kavana, the most fundamental Kavana, is the feeling of reverence. Essentially meditating on how present God truly is in our lives. Um, and then we started talking about the importance of love as well. Although reverence is the start, it can't end with reverence. Um, love is an important part of the relationship. Reverence and love are the two wings that give flight to our service. Last week we spoke about a very unique Kavana, and it was a difficult, it was one of the more difficult topics we spoke about last week. We spoke about the kavana of unity in mitzvahs. To have in mind that when we're doing a mitzvah, we're connecting not only, we're not only satiating our passion for God, but we are connecting to a deeper part of God way beyond how we feel. And because of that, there's a unification of souls that takes place. When we do a mitzvah, we're united with we, with the Jewish community at large. Mitzvahs really are uniting. Think about it. The degree that I appreciate God emotionally or intellectually is going to vary from person to person. So how you perceive God, how I perceive God, how Moses perceives God. right? There's 13 million Jews. I don't know how many Jews there are. But there's that many perspectives um but when it comes to mitzvahs they're all the same moses ourselves um and every jew in between that generation gap has the same matzah the same passover seder the same tefillin the same shabbos candles there's a there's a certain deep unity to appreciate but now this part of the chapter Circles back to the importance of love. And he says. Feeling love. For God. In our service. Is an expectation. Is a, is a uh, realistic expectation. That we all um, have. Or that is had. How do I word this? The Torah expects this From all of us. To experience love for God. Now how is that. Uh, possible. How can you tell somebody, love God? How can you tell me who to love? You could tell me, how can you tell me how to feel? So here is the answer. Take a look on page 517, right where it says section 10. So right under that, the bold paragraph. But while you may find it hard to genuinely desire the merging of these divine energies on behalf of the whole community. right? That's a lofty level. Every person in Israel does have the genuinely authentic desire, at least for his own soul to merge with and be absorbed in God's light as one. Every Jew has the desire to connect with God. With all his heart and soul to completely connect with God arising from, and, and now where does this come from the, 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 just for a second process this for a moment <laughs> let's take a step back remember what the tanya is the tanya is a collection of advice a collection of counsel that rabbi Shneer zalman provided to chassidim so let's put this in context of a spiritual counseling section, uh, session. Somebody comes to the altar, Rebbe, to Rabbi Zalman, Seeking his rabbinical advice, seeking his Torah wisdom, and says, Rabbi, I'm just not feeling the love. Maybe that's not something I should be expected to feel. And he says, no, you're expected to feel it. Rabbi, I don't think I could be expected to feel it. I'm just not holding there. And he says, no, you're holding there. <laughs> what? Well, what does that mean? Th- 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 that doesn't seem very accurate. There's a lot of room for cynicism here. The is telling you that you can love God even if you don't believe you can love God. The Tanya believes you can love God. And the reason is because, we discussed this in chapter 18, We all have an innate love for God that already exists. We don't need to achieve love. We need to be aware of an existing love. I'm going to read right where I left off. Arising from the innate love, which is dormant in the heart of all of Israel, a desire to connect to God. We can love God. If we're aware of an existing desire to love him. In English. Becoming aware of our souls. Let me put it this way. This is a reframe. A reframe in how we view mitzvahs. And how we view sins. Um, It's not the first time we're discussing this reframe, this shift. But we have, remember, we have BT and AT before Tanya and after Tanya to appreciate the shift that's taking place here. So BT before learning Tanya, a mitzvah is of sentimental value. A mitzvah is a meaningful tradition. A mitzvah perhaps is a brownie point for God. And a sin, perhaps, is of sentimental value to refrain from pork or whatever it might be. Perhaps it's traditional to refrain from those foods. Perhaps it's negative brownie points, negative points on our scorecard, right? That's before Tanya. But Tanya transformed how we view mitzvahs and sins. We view it as a relationship. And a mitzvah, The word mitzvah, by the way, means connection. A mitzvah strengthens that connection. And a sin um, weakens our awareness of that connection. And imagine I were to picture this before doing a mitzvah or before considering a sin. I would consider the ramifications. I'm not just transgressing tradition or heritage. There's a relationship that I'm affecting, right? Our we would be a little bit more careful, right? Um, but by the way, this is this is applicable to any relationship. In any relationship, um, if we really understood the ramifications of our behavior. Um, we would behave differently. We would behave more carefully, right? Why are why are kids always getting into trouble, <laughs> right? The, who who remembers back in school? There was that one kid who was always in the principal's office, right? Why? Um, I was one of those, by the way. What's uh, erase that from the record? But what what's the reason?
0: Because they're impulsive and they don't think and they're using exactly. they just do. Because he, atten- he wanted attention.
1: Okay, that's part of it, right? In other words, we're valuing attention over the, um, the ramifications of our actions, right? A pr- reason why a person would always get into trouble is because they don't appreciate the ramifications of their actions. If they appreciated the ramifications, the long-term effects of their actions, they would behave a little bit differently right and that's why there's penalties in school that's why you get in trouble sometimes to remind but right that's why when you the, write, run the red light getting, if,
0: yeah the ones that keep but, getting in trouble are the ones that that cannot control the the they, they 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 might get bad negative what's negative implications but they well they never
1: figured out how to not get caught that could be <laughs> That, that could be a part of it. It could be that the discipline is not um, done in the most effective way. Um, but but the point, the, the, the point is, were we to consider the long-term ramifications, we would act differently. And it's no different in our relationship with God. And by the way, one classic example is is food. We're Jews, right? We relate to food <laughs> very well. And this is especially re- relevant during the, we're we're going on one year since the um, since the world kind of turned inward. People have been staying home. You know they they say that um, there was this joke going around This Rabbi says it's time to move during shelter in place. Time to move my mezuzah from the door front door to the fridge because <laughs> I'm going there more often. <laughs> You're supposed to have the mezuzah on the right on the but the, the, the point is, let's look at eating for as an example. If I appreciated and was aware of the ramifications of eating healthy food, the long term ramifications of healthy food, and the long term ramifications of unhealthy food, of junk food, if I was consciously aware, not just informed, but but you know, a deeper sense of awareness. My eating patterns, my eating habits would change, would be different. And it's no different in our relationship with God. If we were aware of the long term effect or even the short, the, the, the current effect of a mitzvah and the effect or ramification of a sin and how that affects the relationship, we would not just um, be more adherent, but we would actually be more trying to find the right word here my my vocabulary is a little bit slow and I apologize I, I don't want to use the word dedicated but I'm trying to find a synonym for dedicated for some reason dedicated is not working for me but let me put it this way if a mitzvah is meaningful and that's it how much am I going to sacrifice myself for that mitzvah only to the extent that I value it as meaningful. But if I view a mitzvah as sacred, how much am I going to sacrifice myself for that mitzvah? Whatever it takes. Just like a relationship. If a relationship is about what I like, (laughs) it's about my own pleasure, it's about how I feel, how much am I going to sacrifice for this relationship? How dedicated am I going to be for this relationship? Well, to the extent that it feels good, right? As soon as it doesn't feel good anymore, I don't need a sacrifice anymore because that was what the relationship hinged on. But if the relationship centers, but if I treat the relationship as sacred, and by the way, we treat, we treat in Judaism, the Hebrew word for marriage is kiddushin which comes from the word kadosh, sacred. Marriage is sacred. So now I have to sacrifice myself for the relationship to the extent that the relationship is sacred, not to the extent that it conveniences me. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. If we were to see the relationship forged through the mitzvah, if we were to see how the relationship was disturbed through a sin, our sacrifice, our dedication, would be immeasurable let's read that inside it's th- that paragraph we were just reading three paragraph three lines from the bottom it starts from the, it's the end of the line starts with and three lines from the bottom of that paragraph and not to be separated or cut off god forbid from his absolute oneness even if this requires actually giving up giving up one's life we call that in hebrew mefesh, soul sacrifice If we pictured the effect of a mitzvah, the impact it had in our relationship, if we pictured the impact a sin would have on our relationship, at least on a uh, conscious level, we would sacrifice ourselves for mitzvahs. Now, sacrifice, messirahs nefesh, doesn't necessarily mean, uh, um, what's it called? Being suicidal, God forbid. I'm going to share my screen with you because... There's a beautiful insight that I recently came across from the Lubavitcher by giving insight into what uh, soul sacrifice truly is. Just give me a second. Are you able to see the screen? You guys able to hear me? Hello? We
0: can hear you and see Yep, we can hear you and
1: see your screen. Okay, awesome, awesome. So this is an excerpt from Torahs Menachem. Torahs Menachem is a um, verbatim transcription transcription transcript verbatim transcripts of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's talks starting from 19 uh, 1950 till 1992 or 1993. They're all recorded verbatim um, there was a group of human tape recorders that was most of them were on Shabbat. They couldn't write them down. And here's what he explains. Um, this is just an ex- excerpt. Hasidic teachings point out that the term mesirat nefesh, which means soul sacrifice, nefesh is soul, masirat means sacrifice, is the common term used when discussing commitment to our faith and not mesirat guf, body sacrifice. We refer to it as soul sacrifice, masirat nefesh, not masirat Guf, not body sacrifice. What's the difference between the two? Nefesh, soul, in this context means one's drive. In other words, in essence, masirat nefesh, soul sacrifice means to sacrifice our drive, what we desire for what God desires. Sacrificing what we desire for what God desires. The outcome should not be a lack of personal desire, but rather one's desires become aligned with God's desires. True sacrifice, true soul sacrifice means not that I kill myself for God, not that I die for God, but that I live for God, which means I don't um, repress my desires. I have more sophisticated desires. I I was learning Tanya a couple months ago we're studying Tanya together with a with a young uh, fellow in the community, teenager, high school boy. And we were going through the concepts: what is a Russia? What is a Benoni? What is the Tzadik? And I said, what would indicate that somebody's not no longer a Russia? What would indicate that somebody is a Tzadik? So he said, is it, does it mean that you don't have any desires? I said, no. You still have desires, the desires are more meaningful. The goal here is not to destroy our personality for the sake of God. Um, The goal is to align our personality with God. To for God to for our personalities to facilitate God. Just like the world should become a home for the divine presence. Our bodies, our desires, our hearts should become a um, a facilitator for the divine will. That is sacrifice. That takes sacrifice. That takes work. Take a look on the bottom of five seventeen and before i read further, any questions thoughts comments okay so it, what straight. is
0: it so it's a shift in perspective
1: essentially yeah it's a it's a shift in values i, I yeah i think it all boils down to values but then you
0: Seeing. have to value. someone else's you have to value Hashem's wishes before your own so you have to change your own
1: values exactly exactly and and the reason is because those values are not just meaningful they're sacred right if they're sacred well it doesn't matter how much I'm in the mood or not (laughs) they're sacred right just like a marriage a marriage is sacred it doesn't matter how inspired I am about the relationship right now the relate I'm married nothing I can do about it you're stuck (laughs) you're stuck with God nothing you can do about it
0: so it it. it seems like there are an awful lot of Jews who don't want to don't want to search and don't want to know about God now I'm not judging by any means but but uh There are a lot of Jews who say they're atheists or they don't have a relationship with God. um, If they all have an existing desire to love God, they're not looking
1: for it. Yeah, in other words, it's it's there. They're just not aware. They're just not aware of it. And Um,
0: it seems like to start a relationship, you need to understand what God wants. So you actually have to more understand everything about god so that you can actually align yourself but if you don't understand it you won't be able to
1: right least, it, uh, yeah well said well said and that's what the torah essentially is god is being vulnerable with us and and we have telling to what, what, exactly imagine somebody was vulnerable with 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 you and we just dismiss it <laughs> how, how painful is that <laughs> Now God has a healthy self-esteem, and He's very forgiving, and and but but at least from our perspective, now Jews have this desire. The desire is there. You're right. Uh, many Jews um, don't feel that they want it. Aren't even aware of it. Most people don't even know. We can live a lifetime and not even not even know about it or not even know that it, that it should be important. I was talking to a fellow once, a fellow in the community. And he told me, and, and it was around the time when we moved here and it opened my eyes because I'm used to seeing things from a very different perspective than, than many of the people who I come in contact with. And it really opened my eyes, a glimpse into to how he saw things, I thought it was interesting. To me, from my perspective, from, and, and the truth is, it's not my perspective, but from where I'm coming from, something like tefillin or anything that God asks is not negotiable because it's sacred, right? In life, we all have things that, that are not negotiable. Certain things are negotiable. Um, before I tell you this story, I want to tell you a different story. And I'm sure you've heard it, but, but I think it's fascinating. Raleigh tells this story all the time. When he first moved here, um, he went to do bar mitzvah lessons in um, these people's house. And he's doing it in the bedroom, back room of the bar mitzvah boy. They're studying together. And he notices a big, and he puts on. he notices a big poster on the wall of a very inappropriate image that um, you would expect to see perhaps in Vegas, but not in a 13-year-old boy's bedroom. And Raleigh said he was quite disturbed, as uh, as any young unexposed rabbi would be. <laughs> um, but you wouldn't expect that. So Raleigh tells the mother, by the way, I don't know if you're aware, but there was something on your son's wall and. Not here to judge, but just just maybe you weren't aware. She says, uh, look, Rabbi, I'm aware. What am I supposed to do? You, can't, you know, you're gonna tell a teenager what to do? Okay. They both um, they both are leaving. Raleigh goes to his car, they leave to their car. They're in different cars. And as they're pulling out of the driveway, Raleigh hears a shriek from the mother. Put on your seatbelt. All of a sudden, there's something where she feels the need to tell her teenager to do something. When it came to something that was perhaps not appropriate, I can't tell him what to do. When it came to something she valued, she was able to tell him what to do. And the, diff- and the, the point is we have things in our life that are not negotiable, there are certain things in our lives that are not negotiable because we ascribe to them an essential value, a sacred value and divine will falls under that category. So back to the story that I was telling you when I first moved here, I'm talking to a fellow in the community about tefillin and he says, I'll tell you something. I lived. I used to live in Sacramento. He Grew up in Pleasanton, lived in Sacramento for a while, moved back. And he says, some Chabad guys came up to me and said, hey, let's put on fillin.' I said, no, thanks. I'm good. And he meant it. he wasn't, you know, he just wasn't in the mood. And I said, no, 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 put on fillin.' He says they start pestering me. <laughs> they start pestering me to put on fillin. I thought it was so weird. We ended up putting on tefillin. And he says, I came to a realization. filling is important. <laughs> he says, I honestly never knew how important it was until they started pestering me. <laughs> so, wow, this is obviously important. It's not just a meaningful tradition. It's not just sentimental. It's, it's non-negotiable. And God's divine will is non-negotiable. Now, obviously, there's exceptions. There's times where it might be... Um, life-threatening and and things like that but in normal circumstances we treat the divine will as unnegotiable because we see it as a sacred relationship take a look on the bottom of 517 but in reality what was it a good story my computer froze all i heard was he notices a big and that's the last of the story I heard. <laughs> okay. Well, the good news it's recorded. So I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you. All right, continue, please. But
0: okay. It's I'll, about, about uh, valuing uh, something that's very important. The the,
1: the point is, we ser- the, the punchline is, we have non-negotiable values. We do. We all do. We have certain things in our lives that are not negotiable. The divine will falls under that category. I'll catch you up in the story afterwards. Though. No. Um, I'm sorry that that you cut out bottom of that's pretty funny bottom of 517 (laughs) but in reality studying torah and observing mitzvahs are also real mysterious nefesh when you study torah when you do a mitzvah you are sacrificing your drive your soul take a look on the top of 518 why is that considered sacrifice since they demand your single-minded devotion Similar to when your soul will leave the body at the end of your life, having fulfilled the biblical lifespan of 70 years, at which point your soul's devotion to God will be total one, since it will no longer be concerned with the body's needs. The reason why we refer to a mitzvah as sacrifice is because when a person passes away at the end of their lifetime, the soul has no other devotion other than to God alone, once it leaves the body. And while you're doing a mitzvah, you experience... That same exact devotion. And that's why our uh, sages of blessed memory instituted a blessing. We're about to learn an insight into one of the morning blessings. The blessing of Elochaine Shamat, one of the first blessings we recite in the morning. Um, John, what page does this sit on in the sitter? Either five or six. Okay, let me, let me, get, let's get a sitter here. Uh, page no, five. probably six. Page five. Five? Yeah. It's not, it's okay. not the Asher Yetzar one. It's and right like, after Asher it's a And it's page as a five. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right under the bottom of page five, right? I'm going to read it inside, on, um, in the actual Tanya, on the bottom of 518. This explains why the sages composed the following, to be said at the beginning of the morning, Uh, blessings before the prayers we're going to learn a new insight into this prayer we say my god the soul which you gave me is pure you breathed it into me and you'll eventually take it away from me and the question is well why are we discussing thank you god eventually you'll take my soul away (laughs) we could thank god for giving us the soul why would we thank him for taking back the soul especially since it didn't even happen yet so here's the insight. Go to page five nineteen. In other words, in other words, since you breathe it into me, and you'll eventually take it into me, uh, um, take it from me, therefore, right now I'll try to approach the level of when you'll eventually take it away from me, and I give you my soul over to return it to you me, to merge with oneness. What essentially we're saying is. You're eventually going to take away my soul. I'll eventually become one with you, God. I'm willing to become one with you now without you having to take away my soul (laughs) by connecting to your will, by connecting to the divine will. Again, every Jew wants this connection. We're not always aware of what we want, right? And we're essentially reminding ourselves by telling God, eventually you'll take away the soul and I'll be one with you. God, I'll be one with you now. As the verse states, to you, God, I lift up my soul. And the way I do this is by devotionally tying my thoughts to your thoughts, my words to your words through the Torah and prayer texts, which I study and recite with the devotion of a disembodied soul in heaven. So in other words, this is is an incredible meditation. Think about this for a moment. Imagine your soul unconstricted by the body. So it doesn't have the blind, it's not blinded by the body anymore, right? Imagine that. Your soul has clarity. Your soul has a very strong, almost a surreal sense of what is true, what is false, what is real, what is fake, what is meaningful, what is shallow. Your soul's devotion is just to God alone. Imagine that. Because it's not in the body anymore. Imagine experiencing that in the body with everyday life, just as I am. We're going through that. We are experiencing that when we connect to God's divine will, when we do a mitzvah, when we study his Torah, when you sit, you open up a Torah book and study, you are connecting to that. And that's why when we say blessings, any blessing we say, we say Baruch. Atta Hashem. Blessed you, God. We refer to God in the second person as you. What king in history of existence allows you to talk to him by you? Right? Do you know what? I don't know how it's like in schools these days, especially in public schools. When I was a kid in school, you can never say you to the teacher. Right? You said, the teacher said, the rabbi said. There was, a, there was that barrier of, of respect that was expected. We weren't allowed to refer to our teachers as you. Teachers would say, who's you? Who's you? <laughs> but God says, no, no, no. We can have a little bit of, we have a deeper relationship than that. Our relationship is much deeper than just professional or deeper than just, um, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit more casual because the relationship is deep and meaningful. And God says, Refer to me as you. Baruch Atta, blessed you. Refer to God as a you. I'll tell you a great story. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Herzog was 12 years old. And his bar mitzvah was approaching and the tradition was at his in his days many decades ago was to have a personal audience, a personal meeting with the Lubavitcher right? before your bar mitzvah. That's what Hasidim would customarily do, do before their bar mitzvah, before their wedding, on their birthday, on special days, special landmark days. Um, and so again, he's He's 12, almost 13, so what is he, 7th, 8th grade? He's a little kid, he's young. And the Rebbe asks him, are you studying Hasidic teachings in school? He says, I am. Which, look, we have some exposure to Hasidic teachings. This is difficult for a 12-year-old to understand, <laughs> Right? It's not easy. It's it's That that frame of mind takes a little bit of maturity. The Rebbe asks him, what are you studying? He says, I'm studying Lakutai Torah. Lakutai Torah is a collection of teachings from Rabbi Schneer Zalman, the author of the Tanya. It's not the Tanya, it's a different book that he authored. I know I have a hard time uh, understanding it often. <laughs> I don't know how a 12-year-old understands it. But the Rebbe asks, the Rebbe was impressed. He says, whoa, 12 years old studying that. He says, which teaching, which discourse are you studying? What are, Which one are you up to? So he's studying a well-known discourse where the famous analogy is given of the king of God, who is the king, being in the field during the month of Elul, the month that precedes um, Tishrei, the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah. Are we familiar with this analogy of the king of the field? Some of us, okay. So the the analogy, and and this is the source of that analogy. We know that that analogy became famous because of that that teaching. So he he learned the teaching in the source. And the, the analogy basically is when on Rosh Hashanah, on Judgment Day, God is, the king is in his throne. But during the month of Elul, the month before the king is in the field, and if you meet the king in the field in a more casual setting, you develop a personal relationship with him, now, when it comes time for Rosh Hashanah, you could enter his throne room because you have that connection already built. And, and in other words, the whole um, the month of Elul is an opportunity to develop a casual, meaningful personal relationship with God. So he said, "I learned about the king in the field." And the Rebbe asks him, "Okay, so how do you practically greet the king in the field?" How do I develop this personal casual relationship? In other words, let's make this teaching practical, not just philosophical. That's what he's telling a 12-year-old. <laughs> he didn't have an answer. You ever told him exactly what we studied here? When you say in davening in prayer, Baruch, Atah, Hashem, blessed you, God. You referred to God in the first person. That is because the king is in the field. God is right there with you. And you could refer to him as a you. With that personal relationship. Now imagine what that does to our davening. How meaningful that makes our blessing. Imagine we had that in mind every time we recited a blessing. Blessed you God. i literally talking to God himself. Forget the titles. I get to know him. Not just his title. Not just his occupation. Right? When you have a good relationship with a doctor, you call him by his first name, not by his professional title. I get to have a relationship with God himself. God wants that. And when I say Baruch I'm orienting myself to experience that relationship. Take a look on the bottom of 519, the second to last paragraph. And it is with this morning preparation of masirah's nefesh, of sacrifice, where I connect to God on a very personal level, that you should begin to say the morning prayers, blessed are you. There's a feedback loop here. When I have what we're learning right now in mind, before reciting the blessings, the blessings become more meaningful. And now I'm more motivated. Now I'm more inspired, I should say. I'm more likely to ex- allow myself to experience the love. It, it's fascinating how the sages composed the sitter, the prayer book. Because if we do it right, we will be very inspired. Our service will take flight. Take a look on the bottom of 519. And with this preparation, you should begin a regular study session straight after your prayer. So I've had this meditation before prayer. The prayer itself became very meaningful. After prayer, I study Torah. What's that Torah study going to be like? I'm not just going to be studying information. I'll feel that I'm studying God's Torah and I'll feel the love. I'll feel the passion. I'll feel the communication. And this is true throughout the day. We start our day on the right foot, with the right prayers, with the right kavana, with the right intention, with the right meditations. And we channel that meditation, that passion, into the proper activities, Torah study and mitzvahs. Our day is going to sail. Our relationship with God is going to flourish. Now, why is this relevant? What is my ultimate goal here? In other words, not just to satiate my feelings, but what is my real ultimate goal? To make God happy. Take a look on the bottom of five twenty-one. Now, your whole intent in having masirah nefesh, sacrifice, or um, drive, sacrifice, soul sacrifice. For God in Torah and prayer, top of 522, to lift the spark of godliness within you up to its source should be with one purpose, solely to give God a feeling of satisfaction and not for your own gratification. As Sammy Davis Jr. used to say, nachas, baby. (laughs) The bottom line, nachas, baby, let's give God nachas. Aren't you too young Let's to know make... who that is? I, I know, but my dad always same loves thing. that. Isn't it saying Jesus for your time? <laughs> my, my dad loves quoting that. <laughs> but the, the the bottom line is giving God nahas. Making God happy. Now reflect back on the analogy that we gave in chapter 31. When we do a mitzvah, when we feel the connection, when we feel the joy, we're taking an imprisoned soul and returning it to freedom. When we make the soul comfortable, we're making it free. It's like taking a, an imprisoned prince or princess and returning him or her to her natural habitat. Right? Um, when we do things to make the soul comfortable and we experience the comfort, pikavana, there's an incredible joy there
0: so david's question was the people who don't do it so then do they will they not elevate their soul so that they'll go to purgatory when they die and they'll stay there for long until they get it right <laughs>
1: that's a good question if, if somebody are, goes well we're going to talk about it tomorrow night actually but if somebody goes a whole lifetime and does nothing yeah they'll they'll um there's talk reincarnation back. There's more opportunity for that. There's opportunity. God gives opportunity to fix that.
0: Okay. So there's hope for everybody. There's
1: hope. I'll tell you (laughs) this. You have a ton of crazy Chabad rabbis that move off to far off corners of the world because they believe. (laughs) Because they say, well, in the Torah, God believes in these people. Okay, so I'll believe in these people. (laughs) And and we're here to create opportunity. To facilitate. So.
0: Is that the basis of shluchus?
1: Yeah, that's that's the bottom. line. Yeah. So then, um, when it comes to the discussion of the coming of Moshiach, if someone has not... um, If someone has not made that connection with Hashem, uh, does that imply that the arrival of the Moshiach is being delayed because that person has lacked the, their connection with Hashem? Um, in the in the bigger picture, yes. In the bigger picture, yes. When an individual, the an individual, you know, the example that the Talmud gives is you have a boat. And you don't get to drill a hole under your seat just because you paid for it. <laughs> right? Well, I paid for my seat. I could drill a hole under it if I want. We're all one. Jews are all interlinked. We're all interconnected. And ha- that has a global impact. It definitely has a global impact. And that's why the Talmud says that a person must look at the world as a scale of half good and half bad. And... That one good mitzvah we do could be the one to actually tip the scale. An individual's mitzvah can tip a global scale. It's an incredible concept. So, so yes, 100%. Now, in terms of their individual lives, everybody does some good without knowing it, perhaps. The Talmud says that even the greatest sinners are full of mitzvahs, like a pomegranate is full of seeds. Now, why are we calling them sinners? I don't know. But but every everybody has um has some good in them. The bottom line, um, um take a look on, on the middle of 522. We're gonna round off the chapter. This is our fifth week, by the way, studying chapter 41. It's been five weeks. So it, it's been a big deal. This is it. This is Maybe it, my friends. You better know this when we're finished. <laughs> The, the middle of 522 it's the the second bold paragraph now for every soul in israel this kavana is completely genuine and absolutely authentic now you might not feel it's authentic but Rabbi revelationer zalman the author of the tanya disagrees with you <laughs> nope it's authentic <laughs> whether you you're going to find it meaningful whether you find it meaningful or not um at every time and every moment even if you're not sure that your intentions are genuinely selfless since it comes from the innate love of the soul, which is inherited by us from our fathers. Now, here comes the most, in my opinion, the most important and practical line here. It's not going to happen by itself. We need to schedule time to think about this. Right? It, essentially, we're being. this requires us kind of reassessing our values, a.k.a. Meditation. Only you shouldn't be satisfied with inherited love, and you must also schedule sessions to contemplate God's greatness so as to attain the reverence and love of God generated from the mind. And then, perhaps, with all this effort, you will succeed, as has been explained above in previous chapters, the path to this goal. Taking time before prayer, in the morning, during prayer, to really think about everything we're talking about here really thinking about our values um who am i talking to when i say blessed you god i'm getting i'm talking i'm getting to talk to god himself i'm skipping the title these are incredible things to really think about to ponder and to motivate our observance that's my story and i'm sticking to it